All right, Genesis chapter 47. If you came this morning without a Bible, there should be one in the rack on the pew in front of you. It's the red book, not the blue hymnals, but there should be a red Bible there. Uh, help yourself. You're welcome to use that. That's what they're there for. Genesis chapter 47. We uh, started this study back at the beginning of the year, taking a chapter a week, and we're getting near the end of the book of Genesis now. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, um, but we've been following the the beginnings, the, the foundations and the faithfulness of God from the very beginning of creation. And I hope you've gotten a lot of out, out of this. Kevin and I have ourselves preparing to, to preach and, and teach to you, but I know many of you have been reading through this on your own, and you've come to us with good questions and observations, and that's it's very encouraging for us. We want to know that you're hungry for the Word of God and trying your best to get it even on your own through the week. So... Genesis chapter 47 this morning. Join me in a, in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in together. Father, we thank you that when we uh, pray for Jesus to love us, love us still, uh, we don't even really have to pray that. He, he will. He does. He has. That's not going to change because it's his nature as God. He is love, and because he has already loved us in the greatest way by coming to live for us and die for us as our substitute. And so to think that at any point in time now he would stop, well, it's unthinkable. It's impossible. And so we thank you for songs that, even though we're expressing things to you that we want, we can express them with great confidence because we know you are giving us your love through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to be here this morning to do this. We don't take it for granted. We don't want to just go through the motions of it either. We want to be reminded of why we're here. We are here because you are worthy of worship. We are here because you are God and God alone. There is no other. You have made that clear to us. Isaiah chapter 46 is talking about idols that Israel flirted with through their years. And you made it clear to them both with your words and with your actions that there's only one. Those are figments of men's imaginations. They are creations of men's hands. You alone are eternal. You alone are responsible for the existence of everything else. And because you've made that known to us, we want to gather together and do what it is you've recreated us to do. You have changed our hearts. You have opened our eyes. You have granted us faith to know you, to see the truth about you, and want to worship you. We want to praise you. We, we want you to hear from us how great we think you are. And we want that to go to your son, Jesus Christ, because we know that's where you want it to go as well. So, Father, I pray that as we get into this chapter this morning and we look way back in history, thousands of years ago, we're not looking at this as, as a bunch of fairy tales, a bunch of stories about events long, long ago and far, far away. But I pray that you will help us to see the connection between then and now, between them and us. And I pray that we will come away from your word this morning, appreciating you more than we ever have before, better motivated and better equipped to live lives of worship to you. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know how much you talk to people out in the world. Um, how often you get into conversations about people that you haven't known before. How far you take those conversations, how many questions you ask. But if you do that and you really start to, to get into people's minds, and I don't mean mess with their minds, but 
figure out what they, they think, what they believe. When you start talking to them about this world, what's going on, and I'm not talking about just the current events today, but what's behind the current events? Is there anything regulating the affairs of this world? What you will find is, as they express themselves, they might not be able to say it in these specific ways, but by and large, most people are going to fall into a couple of camps when it comes to their world view. There's this group of people who believes there is no overruling supreme power or plan. It's just that the course of this world is being driven by the collective positive and negative desires and decisions and actions of the billions of people who live in it. We each have desires, things we want, plans that we make to try to get them, actions that we take to try to make it happen. And there's 8 billion people or so on the earth doing that right now. And so you, you know, all, these, all these actions and thoughts and plans and desires are pinging off of each other and we're acting and we're reacting and we're affecting the planet and we're affecting each other and that's the only explanation for what you see on the news every day and what you experience in your life. That's one camp of people. The other camp believes there is a supreme being and there's variations of that supreme being. You get into their idea of religion and why they believe what they believe and who they believe it about. They, they believe there's this old overarching supreme being who has a plan for this world, and he is sovereignly carrying it out by his active and passive providential movements in this world. He's causing things to take place. He's allowing things to take, take place, and he's steering all of it toward the ends that he's already laid out. That's the other group of people and their worldview. And the fact is... Each of those views comforts the people who believe each one and scares to death the people who believe in the other one. Which one's right? Well, hopefully by the end of chapter 47 this morning, you'll see which one's right. Hopefully you already know. You already believe which one's right. But if not, we have plenty of information in this chapter to to help us arrive at that conclusion this morning. Now, let's think quickly about last week. Last week, we heard Joseph's plan to get Pharaoh to welcome Joseph's family, not just to Egypt, but to a particular area of Egypt, Goshen, over there by the Nile River down in the Fertile Plain. That's where Joseph wanted his family to be able to to settle, and he had a plan to get Pharaoh to let them settle in that area. It wasn't a plan to lie to Pharaoh. He wasn't trying to manipulate or deceive Pharaoh. He was just going to use the things he already knew about Pharaoh. Pharaoh's beliefs, Pharaoh's fears, Pharaoh's desires. Joseph knew them well enough that he thought he could just use those for his advantage and for the advantage of his own family. So, now we get started in chapter 47 and Joseph is carrying out this plan. So look at verses 1 through 6. I'll read them and then we'll make some observations as we usually do. So verse 1, chapter 47. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, 
We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Okay, so Joseph goes to Pharaoh. He says, they're here. They've got their animals with them, and they're in Goshen at the moment. Then the brothers go to Pharaoh, and they say, we're here. We have our animals with us. Can we stay in Goshen? And what did Pharaoh do? Exactly what Joseph thought he would do, what Joseph expected that he would do. He, would, he said, stay in Goshen. That's the best place for livestock. That's, that's where there's still grass because it's, it's near to the river. I want you to have the best. So, so let them stay in Goshen. So things went exactly as Joseph expected them to go. Now, I'm not sure why Joseph picked out five of his brothers to go see uh, Pharaoh. Why not all the brothers? Why five? And was he the one who picked them? Maybe Jacob, dad, picked which brothers were supposed to go and meet Pharaoh. But we don't know why those five. Was it, was it a mixture of some of the older ones and some of the younger ones? Did he pick the ones that cleaned up the best? I mean, you're going to go before Pharaoh the king. You don't want to look all shabby. But maybe you do. Maybe he picked the brothers that looked the most thin and gaunt and hungry. You know, we want Pharaoh's sympathy, so if we look pitiful, maybe he'll give us more sympathy. Was that the, the rationale behind them picking those fives? five? Did he pick the ones that were the best spoken? Who would, who would not say too much, but if Pharaoh asks something about farming, you want, want the guys to be able to answer his questions and, and seem competent, right? Is that what factored into the decision? And there's indication from the language that maybe it wasn't just the brothers, Right? Because um, when they responded to Pharaoh in verse 3, they said, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. So maybe Joseph picked out some of the nephews as well as a couple of his brothers. We're just not very sure why these five, but he took five with him to see Pharaoh. And Joseph got a surprise. Even though it, it turned out the way Joseph expected it to turn out, he did get a surprise from Pharaoh. And that was down at the end of verse 6 where Pharaoh said, If you know any competent men among your brothers, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Competent. You may have a different translation, a different word in your translation. The idea of that word is strong. If any of your brothers you think are strong enough to look after their own flocks and mine as well, then make them not just shepherds over my animals, but chief herdsmen, chief shepherds. I want them caring for my animals, and I want them managing the Egyptians who are caring for my, my animals as well. That was kind of a surprise. We hadn't heard that Joseph was expecting that out of Pharaoh, but it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, Pharaoh is a guy who wants to honor Joseph. He thinks so much of Joseph that he's doing whatever he can to honor Joseph, and this is also another sign of how much he trusts Joseph. I mean, he's learned by now that everything this guy touches turns to gold. Every idea that, that, that Joseph comes up with is a good idea. It works. So why would the rest of his family be any different? If I can trust Joseph 
over my affairs. And these guys are professional shepherds. Surely I can trust them to watch over the affairs of my animals like Joseph has the affairs of my entire kingdom for the last several years. And so this is Pharaoh trying to honor Joseph, but also showing his great trust in Joseph and his family to do great things for him, to continue doing great things for him. And to me, this is a, very quickly, this is just an illustration of what we call common grace. You ever heard that phrase before? Common grace? We're not talking about saving grace. We're not talking about God doing something to save someone eternally. No, common grace is what we use to talk about doing doing good things for people who don't even believe in him. Pagans, even idolaters, who don't deserve anything from God except his justice, but God does good things for them in life, okay? And we've all witnessed this before. You take, a, take an unbelieving businessman, and he hires a Christian. And over time, he watches that Christian and how he does business with integrity and the wisdom that he has and his work ethic, and the way he treats other people, his fellow employees and people who are under him, as well as customers. And he can tell that there's something about that guy that makes his business better. And so as time goes on, the the, the unbelieving businessman is enjoying the fruits of this man's relationship with God. And it happens all the time. It's not that the businessman earned this from God. He doesn't even believe in God. But he's reaping the rewards of this other man's relationship with God. And his life is better because of it. He's making more money. His business is flourishing. His his life is happier because of it. This is what we call common grace. We're going to see in a minute here in chapter 47 just how much common grace God poured out on Pharaoh through Joseph, okay? But first, there's another meeting we have to look at. So look at verse 7. I'm going to read down through verse 12. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. Brought his brothers, maybe nephews. They've met Pharaoh, but now he brings dad, okay? And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? Maybe that's not how he said it, but that's, how, that's what I hear. We'll talk about that in a second. How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. Okay, so Joseph obviously wanted the two men that he honored most in this world to meet each other. And it's interesting when you look at Pharaoh and you look at Jacob. And you just, from what we know of them, from what we know of, uh, of that time period, but, but especially what we've learned now from these passages, here you have two men that can't be any different. At the same time, you have two men that have a very, very strong similarity. What's the similarity? Joseph. Both of these men view Joseph as very, very special. And both of these men treat Joseph as being very, very special. 
It's a very interesting thing. Now, obviously, the contrasts between Pharaoh and Jacob, well, they are stark contrasts in every way. Here you've got Pharaoh, who is king over countless people. Who knows how big the nation of Egypt was at this point in time, but he's king over all of them, and he's like a god to all of those people. The Pharaoh back then was literally viewed and treated, worshipped, like one of the gods, okay? And this Pharaoh is probably in the prime of his life at this point in time. Here's Pharaoh, and he's dressed in splendor, and he's surrounded with splendor and luxury, probably more than our little minds can imagine. He owns untold wealth by by human earthly standards. This guy has got got it all. He is sovereign over that land where they are at this point in time, the land of Egypt. What Pharaoh says goes. He's king. He owns it. He rules every bit of it. And by every human standard, This Pharaoh is at the pinnacle of human exaltation. You can't get any higher. There's no one above Pharaoh. There's no one on the same level. Joseph was right below him, but but he still wasn't on the same level with this Pharaoh, and no one else was either. But at the same time, here you have a man who is ignorant of the one true God, Jehovah. That's Pharaoh. On the other hand, here you've got Jacob. Poor, tired, Old Jacob. He's a shepherd. He's patriarch of a, of a small family. Just 70. We talked about this last week. 70 people in his family. Pharaoh, who knows how many in his kingdom. But, but Jacob's just a leader of a small family of 70. At this point, Jacob is far from home. He's completely out of his element. He is a guest in someone else's land. And he is literally at that someone else's mercy in that land as well. But at the same time, Jacob is at the pinnacle of divine favor from whom? From the one true God, Jehovah, the one that Pharaoh knows nothing about, really. I mean, he may know something through Joseph, but we don't have any indication that he's a believer in Jehovah, the one true God. So imagine Joseph sitting there with these two men. It can't be any different They share this similarity in their respect for and their love for Joseph, but beyond that, they are extremely different like night and day. There's Joseph with them, probably translating back and forth between them because one didn't know Egyptian, the other one didn't know Hebrew. So Joseph is translating back and forth between them. Joseph has got a foot in both worlds. He is a Hebrew. He has become an Egyptian. He was a poor shepherd. Now he's as wealthy as you can imagine. He's got a foot in both worlds. So he understands both of these men. And I think Joseph was probably hoping that each of them would feel about each other as Joseph felt about both of them. You've got to imagine that, that he wanted his dad and this Pharaoh to, to really think highly of each other and, and like each other and get along and spend time with each other. You had to imagine that that's what Joseph wanted at this point in time. Well, how did the conversation start? It started in verse 7 with Jacob blessing Pharaoh. That's kind of backwards, right? What's Jacob got to bless Pharaoh with? It's not like he brings anything to the table. It's not like, oh, let me give you some extra money. Let me enrich you in some way. No, Jacob had nothing that he could give to or do for this Pharaoh. This blessing was more more like a sign of honor. It was a recognition of the Pharaoh's position. So this was an act of of praise. It was an act of honor, kind of like if you went in and you said, long live the king. It's kind of like a spoken blessing in that respect. 
Pharaoh's response is what catches my attention. Kind of weird, wasn't it? Verse 8, Pharaoh said to Jacob, right after Jacob blesses him, Pharaoh says to Jacob, how old are you? Now, where does that come from? Is that an indication of how young the Pharaoh was? Maybe he was so young he had never been around anyone this old before. We don't know for sure how old the Pharaoh was. Is this an indication of how old and worn out and tired and haggard Jacob looked to him? How old are you anyway? We don't know exactly why he said it, right? But we do know how Jacob responded, and we do know some information about Jacob and his age, right? Compared to a lot of the ages that we've seen in Scripture so far in the book of Genesis, was Jacob old? No. How old was Methuselah? 980 years old or something like that? 130 isn't very old compared to that. Even Jacob's father and grandfather, compared to them, Jacob wasn't very old. Isaac died at, um, I think, 180 years old. Abraham died at 175 years old. So compared to his father and grandfather, Jacob wasn't even that old, even though he was 130 at this point in time. I don't want to get to be 130. You can have it if you want it. I don't want it. Because largely, what we're seeing with Jacob right here, what did Jacob say about himself in verse 9? The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. For Jacob, I don't think it was so much the number of years, but the mileage. You know, worn out. Ben Bolton likes to say all the time, rode hard and put up wet. I think that's what Jacob's saying about himself. And he attributes that to one specific thing. What was it? Evil. Human evil. That's what's worn me out. That's why at 130 years old, I feel 300 years old is kind of what he was saying. And it makes you think back over the life of Jacob and some of the evil that has has affected him through the years. I mean, starting with his own evil. I mean, his own name, remember, his name is deceiver, supplanter. And from an early age, isn't that what he did in his family? He and his mother get together and they lie to dad and they, they steal things from his brother Esau. And because of that, he had to run for his life. He had to leave home and he stayed away so long that he wasn't even there to see his mother die or to be there at her death. He never saw his mother again. Human evil, his own evil, had affected him dramatically. You think about his uncle Laban. He goes up there to, to, to run from Esau thinking, oh, I'm going to my family, I'll be treated well here And how is he treated by his own uncle? Changed his wages ten times, I think is what Jacob said. So at least ten times Laban said, you do this and I'll do this for you. I'll pay you this much. I'll give you this if you work for me this long. Ten times he lied to him. Made a false promise to him. Had no intention in giving Jacob what he promised to him. And and it even happened with the, the woman that he loved most, Rachel, right? So Laban... And his evil war on Jacob as well. What about Jacob's wives? Here you have two women jealously fighting with each other, just using Jacob to produce more children than the other one so they could have more status. It's a a one-upsmanship. And and Jacob was caught in the middle of all of that with his wives and, and their maidservants as well. You remember the name Shechem? Shechem, the young man that raped, kidnapped Jacob's daughter Dinah. What do you think that did to him? And then his sons. 
You remember Simeon, Levi, butchering all the men of Shechem for what that one man did to their sister, Dinah. You remember Judah, his son, and his immorality with Tamar and the shame that must have come on the family for that incident. Reuben slept with Rachel's maid just to spite Jacob for his favoritism. And by this point in time, had Jacob found out how Joseph had been taken away from him? Had the truth come out about his sons and how they sold Jacob all those years earlier and all the grief and sorrow and pain that that brought to Jacob for all the years since then? All of that evil, all that godlessness, immorality, people doing what is wrong before God and what is wrong to each other, that's what Jacob had experienced. And folks, sin destroys in so many different ways. And Jacob is expressing it here. He's saying, I am living proof of that. Sin had made his life very hard, and it had aged him in a noticeable way. Pharaoh looks at him and says, how old are you anyway? And largely it's because of the wear and tear of evil, his own and other people around him, how that has worn on him through those years. So after he makes that sad confession to Pharaoh, he blesses Pharaoh again. Not any different than the first blessing, probably the same thing. On his way out the door, it's long live the king. I wish you well. I hope life goes well for you and you get everything that you want. It's just another blessing, a show of honor on the way out the door. And then Joseph made everything official. He situated his family down in the land of Goshen. And here in verse um, 11, the, the word, the name Ramses is used. It's just an interchangeable word for that area or a specific piece of the land of Goshen. Maybe Ramses was, was this particular acreage in all of Goshen, but it's not a different place. It's the same Goshen that we've been talking about all along. And Joseph provides them with provisions, with bread, things to live off of, things to eat, just as Pharaoh had commanded him to do and, and blessed them with. Okay? Now, I mentioned God's common grace earlier. God blessing people who don't believe in Him. God doing great things for people who do not worship Him. And sometimes doing those great things through His own people. I want you to think back with me to the original covenant that God made with Abraham. You can turn there quickly if, if you can do it quickly. Genesis chapter 12. I want to read a couple of verses for you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It's okay. You'll probably remember these words. Genesis chapter 12 2 and 3. This is the first record that we have of God coming to Abraham and saying to him, this is what I want you to do. This is what I demand that you do. And here's the covenant that I'm making to you. I'm making promises to you and to people who are going to come after you. Genesis chapter 12, look at verses verses 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we know the ultimate fulfillment of those covenant promises, right? The ultimate fulfillment is God's spiritual, eternal blessing through Abraham's seed, capital S, Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ would earn spiritual salvation 
and eternal life for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, all the families of the earth. That's the ultimate fulfillment of those covenant promises in Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, verses 2 and 3. But there's also an undeniable lesser element to that promise too. And it's one that we're seeing illustrated in a, in a very clear way here in Genesis chapter 47. Go back to that text with me, if you will, and go to verse 13. This is where we left off. So verse 13, Genesis chapter 47. Now, there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Okay, so we are several years into the famine now. Remember, we had seven years of plenty. I mean, it was raining, the sun was shining, the weather was perfect, the crops were growing, the the grain bins were filled with grain for seven years, and then that famine started. We are evidently several years into the famine now. Moses says it was very severe. And the idea is it was really, really heavy. The famine was so bad that it was weighing on everything, kind of like a crushing, inescapable load. You know, something on your shoulders, and you can't get out from under it, and, it, and, and it's, it's, it's pushing you down into the ground. It's, it's affecting everything about you. This is the way things were going then. The land everywhere had languished. It had fainted. It had completely given up. The land was not producing anything anymore in Egypt or in Canaan. It was almost like the land had been burned up. And we've been through periods of time where it didn't rain for weeks and weeks and weeks or months, and it looks like the grass has been burnt up. And if you have a, if you have a garden, it all turns brown. Everything withers and shrivels up. This is what it looked like after several years of no rain. Famine was this bad at this point in time. This is what the people were living under everywhere at that point in time. But things weren't the same for everyone. Look at verse 14. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. All right. So Pharaoh might not be growing any crops. You know, his farms aren't producing either. But Pharaoh has no lack of money. Why? Because of the plan that Joseph has been executing. Pharaoh has been selling grain all along to Egyptians and Canaanites, and he's been doing it from storage facilities out in the cities. This wasn't all going on from the capital of Egypt. It was going on in the cities. When the harvests were taking place, they're storing grain in grain bins in the cities. Okay? So now, as the famine gets worse and worse and worse, Joseph brings all the money that people brought to those cities to buy grain. Joseph gathers up all that money in the cities, and he brings it into the capital city and into the vault of Pharaoh. So it's all centralized now. It's in Pharaoh's bank, one spot. Pharaoh, while the rest of the world is suffering, and the rest of the world is dying, and the land is languishing, Pharaoh is flush with money. And he hasn't run out of grain yet. There's still grain in his storage bins, okay? So the the people are desperate, and they've got only one place they can go. Where is it? Well, look at verse 15. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. 
Okay, so for the first few years of the famine, people had money. They weren't growing crops. They, 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 they didn't have plants coming up and, and, and fruits and vegetables and grain. They didn't have any of that, but they still had money to be able to go buy grain from Joseph. Well, now their savings are gone. They've depleted all of their, their monetary supplies. They've probably sold everything at this point that they think isn't absolutely necessary. They've sold it to raise money to go back to the cities to buy more grain from Joseph, from Pharaoh. And so now they come to Joseph and they are desperate. They're looking for a handout to save their lives. Give us bread. And is Joseph just going to stand there and watch them die because they have no money? When he's got all their money, that's where it all went. It's come to him. He's holding all their money. Is he going to stand there and watch them die because they have no money to buy anything else when he's got money? That's the question that they're asking. Answer, verses 16 and 17. Then Joseph said, give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. So Joseph says, you've still got something you can sell. You haven't sold everything. You're not out of valuable items. There's still something that you can sell. They've got animals. They've got animals that they used for milk, wool, transportation, meat, And they can't feed those animals anymore anyway, right? They're going to starve to death before their eyes. So Joseph gives them the the idea, the option, trade the animals for grain. I'll take your animals, I'll give you grain. And that's what they did. And that grain evidently lasted for another year. But the famine did too. Famine wasn't finished at this point in time. It's still hot and heavy, literally hot and heavy. And so a year later, the people are back in the same spot. They're coming back to Joseph once again. They don't have money. They don't have grain. Now they don't have animals. But this time, they took a different approach. They had learned something from Joseph the last time. They didn't need a handout yet, and he probably wasn't going to give it to them anyway. They still had something that they could use for money. What was it? Look at verse 18. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them, so the land became Pharaoh's. Now, we have to be careful here. We, we read what Joseph did and we are tempted to start pointing the finger at Joseph, aren't we? That's, that seems kind of cold, doesn't it? I mean, he had the ability to help these people without taking all of their animals, taking all their land, and taking them as servants, it seems kind of extreme and it seems kind of one-sided. And we've got to be very careful that we don't develop that kind of a picture of Joseph here. We think law of Moses. 
And, and what? The, the rich farmer was supposed to provide for the poor people in the community. When you go harvest your field, leave the corners. Don't harvest the corners and let poor people come and, 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 and gather their own food from your fields because you can afford it, built into the law of Moses. And so we understand that among God's people, there were provisions for people who had to take care of people who did not have. But we've got to remember, there is no Mosaic law yet. There is no nation of Egypt, organized nation of Egypt yet, or of, of Israel yet at this point in time. This is all going on in Egypt. Joseph is an Egyptian ruler, an Egyptian governor, okay? And, and that flavors what Joseph is doing and why he's doing it. We've also got to get out of our mind the, what we know from the Western world. You know, we're used to governments that have welfare systems, and it's built into for the government to be able to take care of people who cannot provide for themselves. We see that in our nation. We see it in other Western nations as well. But this is not what goes on back then. There was no government welfare system that we know of in the nation of Egypt or in any other nation at that point in time. Back then... This is the way things worked. Each man was responsible to take care of himself and his own family. You had to do whatever it took for your own survival and for the survival of those you were responsible for. And that's what the people did here. Notice, it was not Joseph's idea, okay, you have to sell me your land and you have to become Pharaoh's slaves now. It was not his idea. This was their idea to sell themselves and their land to Pharaoh. And we also have to remember, too, years after this, when Israel was an organized nation and the Mosaic Law was into place, was there ever times when Israelites sold themselves and their lands to others to be able to survive? Yes, many times. Every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, things were returned, things were reset, but it was still a practice back then for poor people to sell themselves and their land to others who would take care of them in return. Okay, So... We have to be careful judging, criticizing, condemning Joseph for this plan and how he carried it out in Egypt. He bought the people and the land for Pharaoh, and he gave the people grain in exchange, which kept them alive. Okay. Now, let me point out something. Look at verse 21, because verse 21 can be a little confusing. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Did Joseph literally make people move from their farmland into the cities? Well, it sounds like that. And, and, and lots of people agree that that's what happened. Where they disagree is why. There are some people who think, aha, Joseph has got himself now some free slave labor. He owns their land. They committed themselves to Pharaoh as slaves of Pharaoh now. What better way to build cities, build infrastructure, than to use these slaves as free labor? And so Joseph moves them into the city and works them in the cities until the famine lets up and they go back home. That's the opinion of some people. I'm not convinced of that because I I don't see that out of Joseph here. I don't see him looking for a source of of free labor. And we have to remember how Joseph had originally set it up Uh, this storage system for grain and how people were supposed to get it. Again, the grain was kept where? In the cities. Not there in the one 
capital city of Egypt, but out in the cities. That's where all the grain was stored. That's where the people kept coming to get the grain. Okay? So since the people didn't own their land anymore, and they couldn't farm the land anyway, and they had nothing left there on their land to take care of, there really wasn't any reason for them to stay out there on their own land. It might be easier for Joseph to support all of them by bringing them into the cities closer to where all the grain was stored. Maybe that's what he did. It's a more merciful thing for Joseph to do, and it seems like it might have been a lot more efficient for him to be able to take care of all these people now, having them closer to the source of grain. Whatever the case, if he did bring them into the cities, it was only a temporary thing. Look at verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. All right, so you see what happens here? Moses seems to have skipped forward to the end of the famine. How do we know that? Because now we've got talk of seed and sowing and harvest. So evidently the famine is ending now. The people are back in their lands. They're back home. They're back on their farms. They don't own the farms. Pharaoh owns their farms now. But what's Pharaoh going to do with their farms? Well, Joseph comes up with this plan to treat them as tenant farmers. You know what a tenant farmer is, right? You live on the land. You work the land. You don't own the land, but you live there for free. You work the land for the owner, and somehow you make an arrangement to split the profits. The harvests, whatever comes from what gets planted, you split that with the owner. Joseph was extremely generous here. I mean, it was a a 20-80 split. 20% goes to Pharaoh, and he would provide the seed. The people got to keep 80% of whatever came out of that, that harvest. That's very generous, especially when you go back and you read about the traditions of that day. What was normal in that day? And what I found was normal in that day was to to send 40% back to the owner. I read other accounts that said sometimes the owners would charge 50% up to three-fourths of whatever harvest was produced. That's what the owner gets, and the tenant farmer gets to keep what's left. So this deal from Joseph to these people was much more generous than what was typical in that day. And the people agreed with that. That's not just me saying, well, you compare the numbers and Joseph was, was giving them a break. No, the people agreed, didn't they? Verse 25, they were very glad. You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. You saved our lives. We'll serve Pharaoh. We're, we're glad to because you saved our lives this way. Okay. So let's make sure we see this for what it, what it is. What's really going on here? Here we have an extreme situation where everyone would have died if nothing had been done. And Joseph made a plan and executed a plan that literally saved the lives of many, many people, not just from Egypt, but from the land of Canaan and probably other lands surrounding Egypt as well. That's what Joseph did. 
It also made a way for the Egyptians to stay on their land. Pharaoh owned the land now. He could do anything he wanted with it. Pharaoh owned them. He could do anything with them that they wanted to. But Joseph's plan allowed these Egyptians to stay on their land, in their homes, and even get back on their feet again. Here's seed, plant it. When the harvest comes, just give me 20%. You keep the rest. That's, that's a very generous plan. Uh, Joseph's plan also made Pharaoh even richer than he already was. I mean, you think about the financial security for Pharaoh's family and Pharaoh's government from this day forward. And can you imagine the political influence and power that Egypt had gained through this time of famine? Everybody had to come to Egypt. Egypt had the leverage. Egypt had the grain. Egypt could say, okay, I'll give you grain, but you're going to do this for me in return. Can you imagine the influence, political influence, that Egypt now had going forward on all the other nations surrounding Egypt? Now, Joseph has already taught us that the things that we see happening among men are controlled by God. God's doing it all for his greater purposes. So this famine that we've been reading about, Joseph's ability to interpret Pharaoh's dream there at the beginning, the plan that God gave to Joseph, the the outcomes of all of this, there's no exceptions there. This is God causing all of these things to, to go forward and to take place as he has purposed and for his ends. But we have to ask a question. Why would God lead and use Joseph to do such kind things for a pagan king and people like Pharaoh and these Egyptians. They didn't know Jehovah or worship Jehovah as their God. They didn't get rid of all of their Egyptian deities when Joseph walked into town and when Joseph took over and when Joseph started bringing good stuff into Egypt. They didn't. And Pharaoh didn't tell them, stop worshiping me as a deity. I am not a deity. I'm just a man. Pharaoh didn't do any of that either. So why would God do such great things for Pharaoh and these people when they're pagan idolaters through all of it? Well, remember the covenant with Abraham once again. I will bless those who bless you. Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and all that comes from you, your descendants. And we have to remember It wasn't Pharaoh or the Egyptians who brought Joseph down to Egypt originally, was it? It was Joseph's brothers and those Ishmaelite traders who were trying to make some money off of Joseph. No, how had Pharaoh treated Joseph? Well, from the very get-go, Pharaoh respected Joseph. He listened to him. He honored him. He exalted him. He trusted Joseph. Pharaoh gave Joseph the very best of Pharaoh's house, Pharaoh's land. He gave gave Joseph freedom, authority, responsibility, great rewards. And then when Pharaoh learned of Joseph's Hebrew family, how did he treat them? He honored them too. He gave them the very best of, of what he had in Egypt, just like he had done for Joseph. So we shouldn't be surprised at the windfall that came to Pharaoh. That was God's covenant promise, wasn't it? His blessings to Pharaoh for Pharaoh's blessings on Abraham's descendants, Joseph, Joseph's family. This is exactly what God had promised in his covenant back in Genesis chapter 12. And that's not the only place that we see God's covenant blessings coming to fruition. 
Look at verse 27 here in our text in chapter 47. Verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. So think of the setting again. While everybody else, while the rest of the world is struggling to stay alive through the famine, Jacob's family wasn't. They weren't struggling at all. I mean, the language here indicates that both they and their possessions grew and multiplied exceedingly. Their health must have been good if they were reproducing that that quickly. They had not sold off their animals. They've still got their animals, and they're reproducing exceedingly in abundance. They didn't have to sell off their possessions because they've still got them and even more at the end of the famine. And they don't own any land in Egypt, so they didn't have to sell off their land to Pharaoh, and they didn't have to sell off themselves as slaves to Pharaoh because they were just guests in the land to begin with. And so here you have Jacob's family, Joseph and his brothers and his father and their whole family, while the rest of the world is trying to keep from dying, they're doing the opposite. They are thriving. They they are living in prosperity. Things are getting better for them every day. Why? You remember God's promise to Jacob? Back at Beersheba, when Jacob was leaving Canaan, headed for Egypt, but he wasn't quite sure about it yet. He had some fears, and he went to Beersheba, and he gave a sacrifice, an offering to God, hoping to hear from God, and God came to him. You remember that? Turn back to chapter 46 very quickly. Chapter 46 and verse 3. Here's Jacob at Beersheba on the way to Egypt, and he's scared. Should I be going? What will happen if I go? Verse 3 So he said, God said, God comes to Jacob and he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. What's happening in chapter 47? Exactly that. God's promise from chapter 46 back at Beersheba is coming to fruition. It's not coming to fruition. God's doing it. God's making it happen. While the rest of the world is struggling to survive, God was making a great nation out of Jacob's little family of 70. He's turning that 70 into many, many more descendants and many, many more families with many, many more flocks and herds and possessions. My point here is this. God's covenant is controlling everything that's happening for Israel through this famine. Every bit of it. God had said, this is what I'm going to do, and God is doing it in the midst of and even through this famine. And folks, that's not all. Go back to chapter 46 again, or if you, left, if you didn't leave there, stay there. And look at the rest of God's covenant promise to Jacob at Beersheba. Verse 4, chapter 46, verse 4. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. God says, you don't have to be afraid. I'm going with you. You don't have to be afraid while you're there because I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to stay with you. And you don't have to be afraid that, well, you're you're leaving the, the land that I have promised to you. Will you ever come back? You're going to come back. I'm going to bring you back to the land of Canaan. Now, you're going to be dead. That's what Joseph putting his hand on the eyes. It's like closing the eyes when someone dies. It's going to be after that. So I'm going to bring you back here after you die. 
but I'm making this promise to you. Okay, So turn back to chapter 47, and let's finish the story. What actually happened? Verse 28. Chapter 47, verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he, Joseph, swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So Jacob lived another 17 years after he came down to Egypt. So 17 years with Joseph in Goshen. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? How long did he live with Joseph in Canaan before Joseph was sold to Egypt? 17 years. Isn't that something? you got bookends. 17-year bookends on the story of Jacob. Beautiful bookends. I mean, first 17 years with Joseph in Canaan, beautiful. Favorite son, give him the, the coat of many colors, love him, spoil him, spend all your time with him, 17 years. Last 17 years, he's with Joseph in the land of Goshen. I mean, they're, they're thriving in the land of Goshen. The rest of the world's dying, but they're thriving in the land of Goshen. 17, his last 17 years. In the middle, though, wow. Bookends to a very hard story. A story of hardship. With the son separated from the father, experiencing all kinds of evil, but under the sovereign control of God. Does that remind you of anyone else? Don't turn there. I want to read a verse to you. There's always a picture of Jesus everywhere, isn't there? John chapter 17, in Christ's prayer to the Father, listen to this, verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. God the Father, God the Son, together for eternity, in glory, before the incarnation. Son leaves the Father, comes to the earth, experiences untold evil, under the sovereign control of the Father, then goes back to the Father for an eternity of glory with Him again. Beautiful bookends, hardship in the middle, evil controlled under the sovereign hand of God. It's, it's kind of a beautiful picture that we have here in, in um, Genesis chapter 47. But I want you to notice Jacob's desire as he gets near death. I want what God promised me. God promised me that he's going to take me back to the land of Canaan. So Joseph, you've got a promise to do that for me. I don't want to be buried down here in Egypt. I want to go back and be buried in that same burial spot that Abraham bought for my grandmother, Sarah. Sarah was buried there. Then Abraham was buried right beside her. My father, Isaac, was buried right there with them. And I want to be buried there too. So promise me that you will take me back there and do just that. Joseph agreed to it. What's happening? God's covenant is controlling everything that happens to Jacob, not just in his life, but even after his life. Even after his death, God's covenant is still controlling what happens to Jacob. Now, there's something interesting, and then I'll, then I'll wrap this up for you. Remember, the reason that Jacob and his family came down to Egypt was what? The famine, right? Nothing growing in 
Canaan. We don't have anything left. We've got to go down there because we're not going to survive. And Joseph is there, and Joseph can provide for us down there. The famine was the reason that they had come to Egypt. But by the time Jacob died, that famine was long gone. It had been over for nearly 17 years. It had been probably 15 years it had been over after Jacob originally came down to Egypt. So why didn't the whole family... When it came time to take Jacob back to Canaan and bury him there, why didn't the whole family just move back to Canaan and stay there? I mean, it was the land God promised to them. They had just come to Egypt because of the famine. Famine's over. Now we're going back for for dad's funeral. Why not just stay in Canaan? Well, there's two answers to that question. There's the human answer. And the human answer is because Joseph is still Lord in Egypt. And they've got it made in Egypt. I mean, Joseph is just spoiling them in Egypt. They're in, they're in Goshen. They've been doing better in Goshen in Egypt than they ever had in Canaan. I mean, look at them. They've got more people. They've got more animals. They've got more possessions. And that, none of that's going to change as long as Joseph is still in power down there. And Joseph is still in power down there. So stay in Goshen. Don't go back to Canaan where it's going to get hard to start all over again. That's the human answer. There's another answer, right? And it's the bigger answer. It's the bigger picture answer, and that is because of God's covenant. Let me read this for you. This is another piece of God's covenant with Abraham. Jot down Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13. God said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years was part of God's promise to Abraham. Long after you're gone, your descendants are going to go to a place where it's not their land. They'll be strangers. What's that land? Egypt. That's what we're looking at right here in Genesis chapter 46, 47. They're in Egypt. They're strangers in that land. It's not their land. How long are they supposed to be there? 400 years. How long have they been there? 17. It's not time for them to go home yet. God is in control of this. God has deemed you're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. I've got things that I'm going to do for you over those 400 years to you, and I've got things I'm going to do to the Egyptians through those 400 years as well. It's not time for you to come home yet. Again, God's covenant is controlling everything. Everything that happened in the life of Jacob and his family, God is doing exactly what he had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in Canaan and in Egypt as well, for as long as God promised it, using everyone he intended to make it happen. Folks, that's the lesson I want us to pull out of Genesis chapter 47 this morning, that everything was controlled by God's covenant. Jacob, his life, his family, Egypt, the surrounding nations, God's covenant was controlling what happened to everybody in all of those places, and nothing has changed. Ever since that point in time, ever since the covenant was made, through all the years between then and now, and up to today, and still continuing today, God's covenant is controlling everything. Can I give it to you again? I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we could do a history lesson this morning, and I could walk you down through the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Roman Empire. They were there, they were thriving, they were owning their part of the world, and then they ran into Israel and Judah. 
and they mistreated Israel and Judah under the sovereign authority of God. He let them do it, but then he punished them for what they did to his people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the Assyrians were gone, and the Babylonians were gone, and, and the Roman Empire ended. You watch what happens, is happening right now, today, on the news. You're seeing it every day and what's going on in the Middle East. You had the Palestinians who for years and years and years have hated God's people, the descendants of Abraham, hated them. They don't have any place here. They shouldn't be a nation at all. We don't want them in this land. They make threats against them, terror attacks against them. October 7th, murdered how many people, innocent people in cold blood. But what's happening to them now? Gaza Strip's being turned into a parking lot. Palestinians are dying left and right. And I'm not up here to to, to say one way or the other whether I think what Israel's doing is right or wrong. What I'm saying is the whole world is standing by passively watching as Palestine is decimated. Why? I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And it works in the reverse as well. You look at the UK, the United Kingdom, been around for 500-ish years now, Still going strong, still, you know, still, still thriving, still on the scene, still active in world affairs. Take the United States. We've only been around for a little over 200 years, but this is a place everybody wants to be now, right? Everybody wants to come to the United States because there's a good life here, and there's, there's prosperity, and there's, there's an opportunity to advance and, and, and get even more for you and your family. Everybody wants to come here, and, and things are still going well to, to some degree. And how do you explain that? Well, part of the explanation is the U.K. and the United States have been on the side of Abraham's descendants ever since they they were thinking about becoming a nation again. Not that we approve of everything Israel does. We don't think that they're always right, but we're not their enemy. We're their friend. We don't support their enemies. We support them financially, trying to protect them and, and, and wanting them to have the very best. The United States and U.K. has been on their side for many, many, many years, and I think that's the explanation. I will bless those who bless you. But folks, the biggest piece of God's covenant, which is controlling the entire universe, all of history, all of people for all, all of history is in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul stated it this way. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, to your seed who is Christ. All the families of the earth are being blessed by God in some way because of their connection to Abraham's one special descendant, Jesus Christ. On Wednesday night, we are studying the the, the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And we're seeing how God the Son was sent by God the Father as the Father's servant, as a man, as a physical descendant of Abraham, Jesus of Nazareth. And the Father told him that he will give him, Jesus, as a covenant to the people. His language, not mine. Book of Isaiah, chapter 49. I will give you as a covenant to the people. What people? The preserved ones of Israel and the Gentiles. What kind of covenant? That he should be God's salvation to the end of the earth. It's God's promise for what he was going to do for all of those people through Jesus Christ. God has chosen and he is preserving Jews and Gentiles for his spiritual eternal blessings. He is preserving them 
for salvation from sin and death. He is preserving them for eternal life, all of which was earned by Jesus through his righteous life and his death as their substitute. And that's what he was promising to Abraham. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And folks, that covenant has been controlling everything all along. From the time God made it to Abraham, it has controlled everything that's been happening in this world, and it still is today. Do you ever wonder why? With all the wickedness that we see in the world right now, and there's no lack of it, we see it in our nation, we see it in other nations, maybe on a level we've never seen it before, maybe it's just because we see everything that happens right now. But this world has wickedness all over it. And do you wonder why God is waiting so long to send back His Son and judge this world? To get rid of all the wickedness and all the, the wicked people and have His Son reigning in righteousness over His kingdom and His people. You ever wonder why God's waiting so long? Peter talked about it. He said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And us and all and any is all tied back to brethren, beloved, that Peter is writing to. And Peter said, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. What are you talking about, Peter? Peter is saying that God's covenant, His promise to bless all the families of the earth in Abraham's seed, is controlling the duration of this world. How long it's around here? How long it's going to last? Every chosen and preserved Jew and Gentile will be saved. Every one of them will be brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ before He returns. Not one of them will perish eternally. So when we read Genesis chapter 47, it should have an effect on us. We read this chapter and we should come away resting in God's perpetual control over all things according to His covenant. Abraham's life and world, Isaac's life and world, Jacob's life and world, Joseph's life and world, prove it. All of them in their lives prove that God is blessing those who bless Abraham's seed, cursing those who curse Abraham's seed, and He is blessing with salvation those that He chose in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. From all the families of the earth, He was doing it then, He's doing it now. So folks, back to where we started. Who's right? There is a God. He has a plan for this world. He is sovereignly carrying out that plan. And it all revolves around the seed of Abraham. My question to you and to myself is this. Does your life revolve around the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ? Are you searching for your peace, your joy, your hope in Jesus Christ and God's promise, His covenant through Jesus Christ? Is your life activity wrapped up in what is associated with God's covenant promise in Jesus Christ? Are your plans made according to what He has done and what He deserves and what is promised in Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to control your own world? Trying to find your peace 
and your joy and your hope and your pleasure in some way other than the covenant that God has already made to bless all the families of the earth. It's one or the other. It's Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ, or it's us trying to do it our own way for our own ends. Which is it? Only one is an absolute promise. The other is an absolute fail. The other may seem to bring benefits in this life right now, but they're temporary at best. That's it. The other gives eternal life. Whose will it be? Let's pray. We worship you as the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And we know from Scripture that there have been many covenants that you made with people, different people, different time, different places, different reasons, different conditions, different promises. But this covenant that you gave to Abraham for his descendants, specifically his one descendant, Jesus, and all who are in him, that's the one. Through this study of the book of Genesis, you are convincing us of that. That's the one. Everything is tied to that one. All of your plans for eternity are built on and around that one. That's the one you're still carrying out to this day, and you will for all of eternity. That's the one that's, that, that's giving us the, the time frame for, for this world and how it exists right now. We don't know dates, but we know where it's headed. We know why it's taking as long as it is. We know what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for revealing this. You didn't have to. You didn't for many, many years. The prophets of old longed to look in these things, and it was never told to them. It was just told, that's for somebody that comes after you. Paul comes on the scene, and he goes to the Gentiles, and he says, I tell you a mystery. I'm going to reveal to you things that have been mysteries for God's people, the Jews, and the prophets for many, many years, and now God is explaining himself. And this is it. It's that covenant. That covenant that was made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and passed on down through their descendants, but leading to the one, Jesus of Nazareth, and who he is and what he was doing here for some Jews and some Gentiles. That's the one. Thank you for telling us the gospel, the great news that he's the Savior. He's the one. He is the righteous substitute. He is the only man who has perfectly obeyed you, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did it in the place of others, giving you what you demanded of others in their place so that they can have eternal life because he took the death. Thank you for showing that to us. Thank you for telling us that that's where this covenant with Abraham was headed. It's all through him. And those are the blessings, those, the eternal blessings for all the families of the earth, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's all there, right there. Jesus, who he is, what he did. Thank you for letting us know that. And I pray for everyone in this room right now. And I pray that they're not foolish enough to think, oh, I can, I can chase my happiness another way. Or I can earn eternal rewards a different way. Father, don't let them remain in their ignorance. Don't let them remain in their arrogance. Don't let them remain blinded by the enemy. Father, I pray that you will, you will open the eyes of everyone in this room so that we see Jesus and only Jesus. He's the fulfillment of your covenant, your eternal covenant to redeem sinners. Father, thank you for this truth about you and your son from the book of Genesis. Now burn it into our hearts and minds for your glory 
and for our joy. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.